If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Salem, Investigating the Witch Trials. Brought to you by History Extra, I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This is episode five. If anything Salem tells you, it's it's about the intensity of the fear of witches. All the things and harmful things they do, all the misfortunes that can be explained on, on these people, on neighbours, on family members who you think want to do harm to you. It may seem like the most obvious thing in the world to say that the Salem witch trials happened because people were afraid of witches. But if there's one thing that all the historians I spoke to wanted to stress more than anything else, it was this exact fact the power and pervasiveness of belief in the supernatural that abounded in communities such as Salem. And if we start to understand the intensity of these beliefs better, then seeing translucent cats or hairy monsters by your fireside might not seem so crazy. Although, as Stacey Schiff, author of A History of the Salem Witch Trials, has revealed, to begin with, this can all be quite hard to wrap our 21st century minds around. I think it's so essential to remember that to these people, witchcraft is real. I mean, it seems so preposterous to us, and so far-fetched, and so superstitious. And for them, it is a fact of religious life. So let's try and escape from our modern mindsets for a while and get to grips with what witchcraft beliefs entailed and where they came from. First of all, what exactly was a witch? Historian of witchcraft, Ronald Hutton. The figure of the witch, according to the most common and the oldest definition, is a human being who has the power, by whatever means, to create real damage for other humans, usually neighbours, usually people in the same community, and maybe kill their children, kill them, or just destroy their livelihoods. And this means real harm to people. Witches are regarded as operating in secret while smiling in your face during the day, or pretending that they're decent members of the community who just don't get on with you, while actually working to ruin everything you are. In the last episode, we spoke about the power of religious belief, and in Salem, Puritanism specifically. And it's important to remember that religion and belief in the supernatural weren't two competing belief systems. Rather, they were mutually reinforcing. To understand this better, I asked Ronald Hutton to give me some background on how the figure of the witch fitted into the Christian worldview. Witches have been around since prehistory, meaning that when history starts all over the European Near Eastern world, you find peoples here and there who fear witches and often persecute people as witches. And one of those ancient peoples were the Hebrews, who produced the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, where sorcery, bad magic of all kinds is condemned. And there's a specific directive in the one of the books of Moses, which reads, you shall not allow a worker of bad magic to live, translated into English as thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Now, we don't really know what that means. It could be a very specific Hebrew term for a worker of bad magic, or it could mean 
what we would call a bad witch in general. And it could mean that you won't allow them to live amongst you anymore, so they're just exiled. But in the King James translation in the early 17th century in England, it was taken very much, it's in the book of Exodus, that you shall not allow a person convicted of witchcraft to survive. It's taken as a mandate for a death penalty. And as Ronald Hutton and Stacey Schiff explained, this connection was particularly pronounced when it came to Puritanism. Puritanism is exceptionally fertile soil for witchcraft beliefs to sprout and flourish because in early modern Europe, people who believe most fervently in the figure of the satanic witch are people who are the most devout born-again Christians, whether they be Roman Catholic or Protestant. And among Anglican Protestants, the most fervent believers in the literal truth of the Bible, those who feel themselves on a hotline to God most intensely, are the radical Protestants we call Puritans. Puritans have two reasons for being exceptionally afraid of witches or exceptionally interested in whether witches exist or not and what harm they do. Uh, One is that they are biblical fundamentalists, and there is this biblical text that appears to tell you to kill witches. And the other is they're exceptionally conscious of the devil as the great tempter and adversary who's there to ruin human chances of getting salvation. And they're always on the lookout for the devil and his works, which includes witchcraft. There's no gainsaying the Bible. And scripture makes abundantly clear that one does not suffer a witch to live. The feeling that you are dispensing with your religious obligation by identifying witchcraft must have been very strong. After all, as part of a broader religious mindset, witchcraft could offer a convincing explanation for why things might go wrong in your life. And as Marion told me, this could apply to a fairly broad range of misfortunes. You know, anything that went wrong in your life could potentially be attributable to witchcraft because people saw the world as a magical world. They lived in a very religious culture, so they believed in God and the devil. And, you know, if you believed that that God could help you, that God was on your side, well, of course, the devil was against you then. And therefore, why shouldn't, just as God has his special people, you know, his priests and godly folk, why shouldn't the devil have evil people on his side? And some of those might be your neighbours. So, you know, if your pig dies, or more tragically, if your child becomes sick and dies, or if your husband loses his job, or, you know, if there's a terrible accident in your community and maybe there's a fire or, or somebody is injured horribly when the, when a cart turns over or something like that, all the kind of things that in contemporary society we'd probably put down to chance or we'd say is somebody's fault, these could often be attributed to witchcraft. From attributing misfortunes to witchcraft is a short step to hunting out and punishing those responsible for supernatural crimes. After all, as the book of Exodus commanded, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. So let's put the events at Salem in 1692 in a bit of context. This really came at the tail end of a witch-hunting phenomenon that had caught fire across the Atlantic some time earlier. As Ronald Hutton explains, this drew on old ideas, supercharged by a new fervour. Salem is a mixture of something very old, and relatively new. The very old bit is the belief found across most of the world and in each inhabited continent that some people have the ability to harm others malevolently by using magic, by using uncanny means to create physical harm. 
And that was found across most of Europe in ancient times. There were big witch hunts of this sort in ancient Rome. And it's inspired by sheer naked fear. The new bit of this doesn't appear until the 1420s and gradually takes Europe and the European colonies by storm after 1560. And it's the idea that there is a satanic crusade inspired by the devil himself by which evil people are given demons on loan who will then work bad magic for them to harm their neighbours and wreak havoc in a Christian community. Uh, And this is not an idea you find earlier. It's not an idea you find outside Western and Central Europe. It's something very peculiar, and it creates an enormous panic in which a new belief by the elites in a satanic crusade reactivates really ancient fears of harm by magic and suspicion of neighbours. And the result is the early modern witch hunt. And this early modern witch hunt, in which ancient beliefs were given a new momentum by ideas of a satanic conspiracy, exacted a deadly cost. Historians' estimates vary, but it's thought that between 1482 and 1782, around 100,000 people across Europe were accused of witchcraft and some forty to 50,000 executed. Trials stretched across a vast swathe of Europe, from Ireland and Scotland to Spain, Italy, Poland, Russia and Finland. And many of these European trials dwarfed events at Salem. In 1675, 71 accused witches were beheaded and then burned on just one day in Torsaka, Sweden. Meanwhile, several witch hunts in Germany had death tolls in the hundreds. In the 1580s and 90s, the electorate of Trier saw 368 deaths, and repeated trials in Elwangen in the late 16th and early 17th century saw around 450 people killed. So how were ideas about witchcraft spread within and between communities? Ronald Hutton explained more. And you actually only need to have one person who can read in a community, and that person can can get a text and then read it to everybody else. So oral and literary cultures bounce off each other. Otherwise, sermons preached from the pulpit to communities on Sunday by the parish minister will be a great way, or a dreadful way, depending on your attitude, of conveying fear of witches and the latest ideas about them. Ronald mentioned there how learning from books and manuscripts could be spread by word of mouth, and there were some seminal texts that stirred up fears about witches. He told me about one very notable example. Nowadays, the witch-hunting manual which most people have heard of is the Maleus Maleficarum, the uh, Hammer of Witches, which was published in the 1480s by a Dominican friar, a witch-hunter, called Kramer. He was a German, but it was the first really big foundational manual for witch hunting. But also, it's the most lurid of the early modern witch hunting manuals and the late medieval. Kramer was a great storyteller. He was a great one for anecdotes and urban legends. So the book is very colourful. It's 
for modern appetites, the most sensational, the most colourful, and in many ways the most unpleasant of the witch-hunting texts. And so in translation, it can typify all that was at its worst about early modern witch-hunting. And for those with prurient appetites, it's a really salacious, juicy read. And the imagery conjured up in texts like the Malaeus Maleficarum could indeed be hair-raising, to say the very least, as well as advising his readers on how to identify, interrogate and punish witches. Kramer shared gruesome tales of witches copulating with demonic incubi, and even tricking men into believing their penises had disappeared. And it's easy to see how some of these stories could incite fear. There are all sorts of, as I say, urban legends which uh, crop up in it, like the uh, woman with a basket making her way out of the gate of a German town on her way back from market. And by accident, she drops a baby's finger out of her basket and somebody spots it. And that's how she's discovered as a witch and arrested and tried and burned. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Around a century on from the publication of the Malaeus Maleficarum, in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, accusations in Europe reached a peak, after which they began to slowly fizzle out. So what made Salem so late to the game? One of the key aspects to the history of witch hunting in the European world is that it's most intense at the core of Europe around Germany and Switzerland. But after it's burned itself out in those areas and witch hunting has stopped there because the witch hunts basically don't seem to have worked, haven't produced better climate, healthier children, better luck, it spreads out to the fringes. And so the biggest trials in British America, the American colonies, occur in the late 17th century, after witch hunting has died out across most of Europe. But also the biggest trials in Sweden, in Poland, in Hungary, are all in the late 17th, early 18th centuries. 
So witch hunting flames up at the end on the extremes, the opposite extremes of the European world. And one of those extremes is Salem. And Salem was far from the only witchcraft trial in North America. In fact, the Massachusetts legal code put down in 1641 had witchcraft listed as a second crime on its books, echoing the Book of Exodus pretty explicitly when it proclaimed, If any man or woman be a witch that is, hath, or consulteth with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. I asked historians Marion Gibson and Owen Davies to tell me more about earlier witchcraft trials in colonial America. People talk about the notion of Americanness in regards to witchcraft quite a lot. So they start off by thinking, oh, Salem, it's exceptional, isn't it? You know, that didn't happen anywhere else in American culture, did it? But actually it did. Yeah, the early American settlers accused a lot of witches and they started in the 1620s. So they started it a good 70 years before Salem. The first witch to be prosecuted in America is a woman called Joan Wright, as far as we know, and she was prosecuted in the 1620s. So in 1626, she was accused of all sorts of stuff in her community, making people sick, doing things like interrupting people's hunting activities, which is quite interesting. So she'd, she'd made people come home without catching any game and of course if you're a you know you're a settler society that's quite a big disaster actually that means people don't eat so she was thought to be quite dangerous but the interesting thing about Joan is that she was in Virginia she wasn't in Massachusetts which is you know where we think of as kind of witch land the heart of witch country because Salem was there so in the 1620s people started accusing witches pretty much as soon as they'd set foot on American soil but they started doing it in Virginia rather than Massachusetts and then they carry on up the eastern seaboard so in the 1640s there's a couple of cases in Connecticut And the first woman that we know who was executed for witchcraft in America was a woman called Alice or Alice Young. And she was executed in Connecticut in 1647. And these are trials that people don't really talk about a lot. There's another big trial in the 1660s in Hartford in Connecticut. And we barely hear about these because Salem has taken all the the oxygen, all the energy. In a sense, the, the story of the witch trials in America is not that much different from the story of the trials in England of sporadic trials here and there, mostly involving one or two people each time, often just a solitary uh, witchcraft accusation, which then becomes a trial. You know, Salem stands out in that background and that context of a kind of a trickle of cases. If you compare it with parts of the continent at the same time, then you have trials where the deaths, the executions are far, far bigger. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of people dying through one series of witchcraft accusations. So by the time that the persecution of witches erupted in Salem in 1692, there was a melting pot of ideas and former trials from both sides of the Atlantic for the settlers to draw on. And if we're talking about the transmission of witchcraft beliefs, Stacey Schiff thinks we can actually trace a couple of quite specific supernatural ideas that raised their head in Salem, back to one man in particular, the young Boston minister, Cotton Mather. In terms of the the actual narrative, he, he lends it its shape in the sense that there had never before been in New England, there had been witchcraft in New England since its founding, but there had never been in New England witches who flew. There had never been a satanic Sabbath. And those elements are things that seem to have been imported into New England in the writing of Cotton Mather, because he takes them from his Swedish witchcraft case, which he writes about. So you suddenly have these these other elements, elements from continental witchcraft, which have landed separately in Massachusetts and which really contribute very much to this to this invasion. 
and Salem was not Cotton Mather's first encounter with supernatural afflictions. In 1688, four children of a Boston stonemason had exhibited remarkably similar unexplainable symptoms to those of Salem's afflicted girls. Mother had visited the household, and in 1689, three years before things began to get strange in Salem, he published an account of the incident called Memorable Providences. It described the stonemason's children flying like geese and purring like cats. And it's highly likely that as another member of the Massachusetts ministry, Samuel Paris, Salem's own minister, would have been familiar with the account. And it seems a remarkable coincidence that his household witnessed such a similar outbreak. Stacey Schiff. And that account, I think, really will infect what happens in 1692 to a great degree. While we're talking about witchcraft and belief in the supernatural, there's one more figure that I wanted to discuss in more detail. The devil. Satan played a starring role in many of the accusations at Salem. So I think it's important to understand why he was so significant in this story. Ronald Hutton told me more. Christians in the early modern period are pretty clear on the subject of the relationship between witches and the devil. It starts with a bad human being or a potentially bad human being being tempted by Satan himself appearing and offering an irresistible deal or a lesser demon appearing to do the same job. And then the witch, as she or he is becoming, makes a deal, a pact with Satan, whereby Satan has guaranteed their soul in exchange for magical powers, usually worked on the witch's behalf by an assistant devil. This idea of a compact with the devil was something that came up again and again in both interrogations and confessions at Salem. In Tituba's retelling, its contractual nature was quite literal. She recounted how Salem had to sign his pocketbook in, quote, red like blood. And as Kathleen Brown explained, it's not surprising that people believed themselves hoodwinked by the devil's tricks. The devil was such a powerful deceiver. You know, he was known as the old deluder. The devil could make you see things that weren't there. And the devil could also be in your midst, even among people in a church where there were only supposed to be saints, only supposed to be the elect. So it was in common parlance for Puritans to speak fearfully about the devil in their midst. But how could you tell if there was a devil in your midst? How would you recognise him? Kathleen has some interesting points on this and what it might tell us about underlying fears and prejudices of societies like Salem. The devil was alluring, dangerous bad boy, if I can put it that way, often depicted as being dressed in black especially effective with the ladies, especially effective in tempting women because he was somehow both filthy and earthy, but also sexy and powerful, especially effective with women because he would promise them earthly pleasures, sexual pleasure, material goods that they longed for, that he could fulfill kind of wicked desires that especially women had. So there was that kind of traditional way of representing him as this kind of very charismatic, evil man in black. But then there were slippages in that usage, and they conflated in some cases with the way 
Europeans sometimes described people of color, especially Native people, Satan could be a kind of conventional European depiction of the charismatic evildoer, could be a Native American, could be a person of African descent. And indeed, while the devil made an appearance in several of the extraordinary testimonies given at Salem, descriptions of his appearance were far from consistent. While Tichuba described Satan as a tall man in a dark serge coat accompanied by a yellow bird, he also appeared to her in the form of a black dog, a hog, and various different cats. Others described him as having cloven hooves or taking the form of an exotic bird. One woman even wondered if he could appear as a fast-moving turtle. Perhaps these colourful and varied descriptions of the devil reflect the melting pot of supernatural ideas that Salemites were able to draw on when they found themselves afflicted by an outbreak of bad magic. By 1692, centuries of witchcraft beliefs had been integrated into the Christian mindset, supercharged by Puritanism's biblical fundamentalism and stirred up further by stories of outbreaks nearby. It was to prove a potent mix. I wanted to end today's episode on a point from Owen Davies. When we're talking about baskets of babies' fingers or signing a contract with the devil, it's really important to reiterate that these beliefs weren't, quote, crazy, hysterical, or irrational. They made total sense within the belief system of the time. Salem can sometimes be seen as a model of how a irrational set of beliefs leads to something horrific. That is an old sort of 18th, 19th century view of witchcraft and of of magic and of popular belief. But when you put Salem in the context of the intellectual, social, cultural world, both elite, popular, however you want to, to put it, of the 17th century, then witchcraft made perfect sense. It was rational. I think this is really, a really important point. And the greatest minds and thinkers of the day believed in witches and tried to understand it scientifically how it happened. So when we look back on it and the terminology has been problematic. I say terminology of hysteria and craze. You know, that's, you know, it's a weird app. It's not weird at all. If you understand it, it's an, witchcraft is not weird at all. We shouldn't think that we are more rational than the people in Salem because we didn't live their lives. Next episode, we'll be looking at the huge failings in Salem's justice system and asking what made so many people confess to being in league with the devil. Salem Investigating the Witch Trials is made by the team behind BBC History Magazine and the History Extra podcast. It's written, researched and presented by me, Ellie Cawthorn, and produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Fact-checking is by Josette Reeves. BBC History Magazine editor is Rob Attar and our content director is Dave Musgrove. For more history podcasts on a variety of subjects, head to historyextra.com forward slash podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.